come to the first Sunday of the month and we're going to partake of the Lord's table. Everybody's a little excited about it, I'm sure. We've been taking a uh, very long and dangerous, maybe, time in the book of Corinthians. Man rising up in his mind and exalting himself in positions in which the Lord of Lords and King of Kings is somewhere locked in a closet and is not seen. We're looking at a church that chapter 5 of the book of Corinthians says, it is common among the fellow, common among the people that your church is a church of immorality. It's a normal acting practice. That's hard stuff. It's hard stuff to look and say, I'm a lower level galley slave. It's a hard stuff looks at me as a table waiter. It's hard stuff to say all of this, but I thought we were heirs to the king. I thought we had these blessings. I thought we had this joy. And then we sing a song that says, take my life, take my moments, take my days and let them be nothing but flowing, ceaseless praise. How can I be a lower level galley slave and be in ceaseless praise? Now I will bring you back to the Lord's table and tell you how can you be poured out, mocked, ridiculed, spit on by the very people you choose to save and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How do you do that? We come to the Lord's table this day and we take it. I hear a lot of, I don't hear a lot. I've heard a lot of, some controversy over it that you're supposed to take it every time you come together. Uh, I hear that, you know, it needs to be this sacred thing and it needs to be this thing. And, and what happens in the debate over the Lord's table is we miss what the Lord's table is. You are to do this in remembrance of me. When you think of taking that little, whatever, the cracker, whatever, I don't know what it is. You know, I just look at it and think that it's overrated. But, I mean, the cracker, not the Lord's table, the cracker. And I keep thinking, you know, this is, you know, what is this that we are doing? And yet what you do there, if you truly are honest with yourself, is the crux of Christianity. Crux of Christianity. And he makes um, a statement in chapter 6 of John that I believe we miss because we, we have a sacrament that is the Lord's table. All right? That's just part of what we do. We have this big box with a cool tub in it, and it's a sacrament. That, you know, he told us to do this, to be baptized. So I want to take a, this time, and I know you look at that and he says, he's got John 6 and six points in a message, and he's going to get done today. All right? I had a big breakfast. Did you? <laughs> I pray that you did. All right? 
I'm not going to read the whole text. I mean, that's going to take us a while just to do 71 verses. But I do want to kind of bring you up to speed into what? The text focus, if you were to take this text, chapter 6, and and say, what is the theme? There's only one theme. Yes, there are two massive miracles. But there's only one theme. Okay? That's those who say they are followers of Jesus Christ and are not. Okay? And I can go through this and I can say, here are ten signs of a person who's going to fall away. Or I can give you ten signs why not to be in the charismatic movement. Uh, sorry, I had to throw that one in there. I just felt good about it. But uh, and, and just a lot of stuff I can sh- I can show you in here why this tr- what is it transubstantiation something that the Catholics do. If you're Catholic, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you don't, ask Karen. She knows what it is. They get what they believe happens at the Lord's table from this text. And it don't happen that way. <laughs> okay, the theme's missing. But I want to stop start with it. And it says there in chapter one or chapter six, verse one. After these things. Okay, I need to share with you what John's gospel is about. John's gospel is a little bit different than what you're used to. Okay? John's gospel, if you try to take John's gospel and you run it in a chronological order, you will pull your hair out. Okay? Because John's not chronological. These things are about a year or a little more from chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, After these things there was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, the feast of the Jews could be one of two different feasts. There's only two feasts that they would have celebrated at the time of Christ. One is Passover, one is Tabernacle. If it's Passover, he mentions it in chapter 6, so he's a year away. All right? If it is the Tabernacles, it's about seven months away. So either way, when you go from chapter 5 to chapter 6, there is a blank spot of almost a year. What is amazing about that year is that is Jesus' Galilean ministry. Everything that Jesus did in the Galilean area, He did between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of John's Gospel. John doesn't record what happened in the Galilean ministry. Matthew gives you chapter 4 verses chapter 4 through chapter 15 on what happened in the Galilean ministry. Mark gives you chapter 1 through 7 is what happened in Jesus' Galilean ministry. Luke gives you chapter 4 verses chapter 4 through 9 on what happened in Jesus' Galilean ministry. John says, after these things. (laughs) John says, after the Galilean ministry, we went down to Judea. Is basically what he's saying. Okay? Verse 2 says, a large crowd followed him. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are at the conclusion of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He has not gone into Judea. He has gone into Jerusalem one time without the disciples and he turned the tables over. Please note, there's two times that he turns the tables over. You've got to get a hold of this. Um, as I go back through this, when it says there is a large crowd, that is maybe the greatest understatement in Holy Writ. I mean, um, we've got... Uh, Several political events going on in our country. Okay? And the one thing that everybody's looking for is 
name recognition, right? At the time of chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus has cornered the market on name recognition. There are thousands and thousands of people who have been instantaneously healed. You've got to grab a hold of that. The crippled man who was lowered through the ceiling has got up and danced off. The blind man has can now see. Leprosy has ceased. Infirmity in the northern part of Palestine has ceased to exist. Death has left the building. You've got to understand that. If you did that today, the whole world's following you. Think about it. If you could go to the hospital and go into the morgue of any hospital and say, Come forth! And they all get up and follow you. No matter the infirmity, no matter the pain, no matter the suffering that existed, you could say, Jesus, help me! And He would do it instantaneously. So to say that a crowd who was following Him is an understatement. People were coming from the what you know as Lebanon were coming down. People were coming from Syria. People were coming down from Jerusalem and from Perea, which is that other side, which would be uh, Iran-Iraq border. All of that. They were coming because they knew no matter the infirmity, this man had the ability to make it cease instantaneously. Instantaneously. It says a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on those who were sick. So one afternoon, they kind of cruise up to a mountainside. It's the northern hill of the Sea of Galilee. I've seen pictures of it. I've got this wonderful CD that my daughter got me from college. And it takes, you put it in your computer and you just move around. And you can up and over. And I can see this great massive hillside. It's got deep, thick, lush grass. And it looks down across the Sea of Galilee. That is where they're at. They're near Capernaum. Capernaum is on that northern shore. And he goes up to that high grass and he takes his disciples and he sits down there. And he says, it's time for the Passover in verse 4. And Jesus looks his, lifts his eyes to heaven and seeing what a large crowd. And he looks and he sees this throngs of people. You need to understand, it's near Passover. You have all of the people who, listen, grab this. I want you to grasp this. You have all of the people who know of this man Jesus and his abilities. But you also have all of the pilgrims headed for Jerusalem for the Passover. It was not uncommon for Jerusalem to swell in excess of a million people at Passover. And they're all coming from all parts of the civilized world. And they're coming down through there and there's a buzz about this man. This man which death he has conquered. Leprosy he has conquered. All diseases he's conquered. Demonic possession. They flee. Come see. Come see. He asked Philip, where are we going to get food to feed these people? It's not like around here. Does Pizza Hut deliver? You know, and then he makes this statement. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread isn't sufficient. Um, a denarii is a, a day's wages. 
So you're looking, 200 days wages won't pay for what, for the bread. I mean, we can't even get, you know, biscuits. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, says to him, here's pragmatism. Here's pragmatism. There's a lad here with five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many? See, the pragmatist looks at it and says, come on, man, get real. We got five crackers and some pickled fish. What are we going to do? It says there's a mass of people. Please understand, he has a following. We are concluding his Galilean ministry. He's been now for a year in Galilee, overcoming everything. Just minor stuff, storms. You know, raising the dead, leprosy, paralysis, you name it. He's just, you know, it stops. And it says there, what are we going to do? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in this place. It's like I said, I've seen this. i got the CD. It's phenomenal. You can look at this. It's this deep, lush, broad grass that is just green up over the hillside. And it heads up toward the Galilean Basin. Anyway, let's go on. It's just pretty. I like it. It's got to have, the one picture I got was picked up in a good part of spring when you got all the wildflowers. So I'm sure that, you know, about this time, August on that hill, you got the same thing you got in Colorado. A good, nice shade of brown. Okay? And, and grasshoppers. All right. But I don't know if they have grasshoppers there. All right. Have the people sit down and there was much grass. I like that. There was much grass. I like that. He didn't say, let's go find a real rocky, thorny place where there's a lot of dirt and everything. Have everybody sit down. Okay, now, certain people, segments of our society would say, they had all them people standing out in that luscious grass. How can they do that to that poor grass? But anyway, I just think God put grass out there for us to sit our big old keister in. Okay? That and feed my wife's horses. All right? Here's what he said. Have them sit down. So the men sit down. And it says, the men sat down and the number was about five grand. All right, now let me ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ believed in equal rights? So if there were 5,000 men, how many women? What about kids? Every time the disciples tried to get rid of the kids, what did Jesus say? You know, something paraphrased this way. You want me to warm up your head? Right? So you could conservatively look at a number of 20,000 and be safe. Or you could look at a number in excess of 50,000 and be safe. We know that the male population was 5,000. We don't know how many women were there. We don't know how many children were there. But if you figure that it was common for a man to be married, you could say 10,000 parents. And if you understand that your business was based on your children, it was common for about six kids. You figure the math. The grass is dying. No. You have thousands of people healed. And all he does is just heal people and teach scripture day and night for months. That's all he's done. That's all he's doing. And the crowd is huge. I was reading Linsky's commentary on this and he says, He is the event of their lifetime. Unquote. I mean, think about it. We're hanging out on, you know, the shore of Galilee, high grass. And really, what are the worries? 
There aren't any. Why? If you get a cold, he'll heal it. If you got pneumonia, he'll heal it. If you fall over dead, he'll get you up. Doesn't matter. But you know what happens here? One of the things that I see when I read Linsky and he says he is the event of their lifetime. Here's the thing that I see, and I see this today. Okay? Jesus Christ, at the conclusion of his Galilean ministry, is probably the single most popular person in Galilee. Safe to say. Correct? And it may be the single greatest danger when Jesus is popular. And that's what you have as the setting that we're going to step into this teaching. When Christianity becomes the end thing, when Christianity is cool, when I am born again, here's what Spurgeon speaks of, of these people who associate with a popular Christ. Now, this is late 1800s when Spurgeon writes this. The problem with Charles Spurgeon is we didn't heed it. Here's what he says, quote, um, the attraction, popular, speaking on the popularity of Jesus Christ, attracts the shallow who run with the mood of the mob, unquote. Hmm. There's a fascination in our society for the supernatural today. Many people are seeking the things of God because they've gotten themselves into a predicament. Or perhaps I have everything the world has to offer, but I just feel that there's something missing. Maybe I can add a little Jesus to the mix. Jesus looked out upon these people in Matthew's gospel and he's seen them sitting there on the foot of this hill. And it says he had compassion on them. And he looked at them. Think about this, because we always like this, right? I like people to have compassion on me, right? Don't you? They, they, they just seem compassionate, right? We like that. He looked at them in compassion because he looked at them as sheep with no shepherd. He looked at them as people wandering aimlessly, only wishing to fulfill their fleshly desires. Well, how can you say they want to fulfill their fleshly desires? The text says they wanted to fulfill their fleshly desires. Look what he does. Jesus takes the loaves and gives thanks, and he distributed it to those who were seated. All right, guess what? The text literally says that he gave it to his disciples. Now, you've got to think his disciples were thinking, Jesus has lost his marbles. Jesus has lost his marbles. Right? We got five crackers and two pickled fish. I actually read a commentary by a lady. I guess that should have told me something. That said the reason that they could feed with that many was because everybody took small bites. What? Yes, they took small bites. Small bites? Five crackers, two fish. Five thousand? That's not a bite. That's you touched it. And as it passed, you licked your fingers. <laughs> that ain't right anyway, because verse 12 says they were filled. <laughs> 
Okay, all right? You can just touch the cracker and I was filled. It's an amazing thing. But he, it literally, the text says that he, those who were seated next to him would have been his 12 disciples. He takes the fish and the crackers and loaves, whatever you want to call it. If you see them, they're little crackers, barley crackers. They don't swell up like bread does. Anyway, he takes them, he gives thanks for them and says, disperse it. So who sees the miracle first? The disciples see the miracle. The original 12 see the, the miracle of what is called creation. He is creating food. Now I have to think in my mind that that was probably some of the best pickled fish and barley crackers you could ever lay your chops on. Why? It's not been touched by sin. Why, this is brand spanking new. A moment ago it exist, didn't exist, and now it does. And so his disciples immediately see the plenty. And he just, they start passing it out. Not only that, when they get done, he says, gather up the leftover so that nothing will be lost. And so, verse 12, and so they gathered him up and they filled 12 baskets. That word baskets in the Greek is a word we get coffin from. That's big basket. I mean, we're not talking, when I think of basket, you think of a little bit. I'm talking about a basket has pallbearers. Okay? Therefore, the people saw the sign that he was performed. They said, truly, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. All right, so Jesus, look what happens next. Here's why I say they were there for their flesh. These sheep without a shepherd are there for their flesh. Why? Jesus perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to a mountain by himself alone. Why would they want to make him king? Free food. Free food. All we have to do is sit on a grassy hill, sit and listen to the water lap up against the shoreline. And not only that, his 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 people service. Well, you just sit there, you know, and eat free. You need to understand something. At the time of the writing of this book, men and women worked solely for that day's food, period. Every day was to eat. That was it. There wasn't, you know, are we getting our 401ks, our retirement things together? No, 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 that wasn't there. They were working solely so that they would have at least two meals. At least two meals. And here we got a guy who's, Got coffins full of food for big baskets. Big baskets. And he taught all day. And they did great things. Let me go on here. He went off to a place by himself. His disciples were there, uh, went down to the sea, and they grabbed a boat and were headed back across to Capernaum. And this is that wonderful text where it kind of gets a little rough. The boat winds come up out of it. Uh, reading some of the stuff that I have on Israel, uh, there's a channel that runs through there. If you know where the Sea of Galilee is, it's right here. And the Jordan River comes out of it and flows to this Dead Sea. Okay, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth. Okay. And so when you think about the Galilean area is high and then it drops a little over 3,000 feet below sea level uh, and not, you're probably within 
less than 50 miles, you see what I'm trying to say? Big hill, drop, fall down, right? Okay, so you understand some of the topic. All right, on this side is the, the hills of Sharon, all right? Over here is what you know as the Golan Heights, all right? So you have a funnel between the mountains. So you have the winds that would come off the Mediterranean Sea would hit these two mountain ranges and would literally turn and kick down across the Sea of Galilee and down the valley. All right, that's where you get these storms can just come up out of nowhere and these gale force winds. And, and this is a big lake. You need to understand something. This thing is comparable to the Great Salt Lake inside the Sea of Galilee. This, is a, this isn't like a, let's skip a rock across the Sea of Galilee. All right, this, you can sink and drown. Anyway, they got scared and the boat's kind of filling up with water and it's coming over the bows and they look out and it looks like there's somebody walking towards them. All right. So you got these fishermen who are kind of in control of the boat, who feel like they're a little bit on the panic side. You've got novices who are in the boat. Matthew, who's a tax collector, probably doesn't make him much of a fisherman. And so he's kind of hanging out in there. You've got Judas Iscariot and Judas the Zealot. They're in there thinking, this religious thing's kind of getting out of hand, don't you think? And the fishermen are a little nervous. They think they're going to sink. And somebody looks out, and there's somebody walking towards us. And the voice from that person says, don't be afraid, it's me. Right. I'm out of the boat. I'm leaving. I'm going to take my chances drowning. Why? Now, I don't know about you, but that would freak me out. Now, you can sit there and say, well, but this is Jesus. I'd be scared. I'm thinking, I got storms getting ready to swamp my boat and people walking to me, telling me, don't be nervous. Okay? And then you get the lunatic. The fisherman, the man who makes his living catching fish, he gets out of the boat and starts walking to the lunatic. And it says that he gets in the boat, and the boat is instantly taken from that position to the shore in Capernaum. That's the way the text lays out. It doesn't, I don't know how it does it. It doesn't say that it flies or it across. I don't know. It says they're instantly, boom, at Capernaum. If you can walk on water, you can take a boat and make it, boom, instantly at Capernaum. The next day, the people get up there and they see Jesus there. They knew that the disciples had taken the only boat and they knew that Jesus has gone kind of off to hide someplace. How did you get there, Jesus? He looks at him and smiles and says, I walked. <laughs> no, just kidding. All right, he didn't say that. I did all that because now I want to give you six points. I want you to know what's going on. We got it. When I tell you that there's a crowd of people there, there's a crowd of people there. Okay? It is not in it is not far fetched to say fifty thousand people. It is not far fetched to say that they're wanting to make this man king. It's not far fetched to see what these people seen is beyond their understandings. What they seen was beyond mine and your understanding. All right? And all day I mean beyond my understanding, he can teach all day and people sit and listen. Of course, they did say he taught as no one ever before. They ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Is the question in verse 25. Verse 26, he says, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Filled. There it is. Why are the people seeking Christ? Let me ask you a question. 
Why do you seek Christ? Because that's what you're going to do in a minute when you partake of the table. He makes this statement. Do not work for food that perishes. Now, how goofy is that statement in a society that has to work daily just for to sustain themselves? But he says this. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Interesting statement, don't you think? Then I'm going to say, here is their question. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Don't you find that an interesting question? I found that fascinating. Okay, now that they may not have understand the walking on water thing, but they did understand free food. Okay, and there's still probably a little murmuring going around on how did the rabbi get over here? All right, so they've got some questions going on. Like I said, we're at the conclusion of the Galilean ministry. I mean, they already know that this guy's just not your average Joe. So they ask him a question. What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, our theology says, God is sovereign. You're saved by grace through faith. You cannot work the works of God. Correct? It is God working through you, the indwelling of the Spirit, right? What did Jesus say? This is the work of God that you believe in Him who he, whom He sent. Hmm. That seems odd, doesn't it? What about saved by faith alone? Is he contradicting something there? No. If you're going to do the works of God, how are you going to do it? If you're going to be a lower level galley slave and praise him daily, moment by moment, how are you going to do it? So they said to him, What then do you want? What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What did he just say? He said, Believe that I am he whom he sent. What did they say? Do a trick. Do some magic. Make the Empire State Building disappear. Oh, it wasn't around, was it? Um, you came because you were filled with bread. You know what? Tricked her one, right? And they're saying, do a trick so that we will believe. Let me tell you something about miracles. Miracles are never to win the lost. 
Miracles are only going to, to the strengthen the faith of the saved. It's the only time you'll see it. The only time you'll see it. Let me show you a, a crushing verse, and I'll come back to it. Look at verse 66. This is a discourse that's going to go on, and I want to show you what the response of the discourse is in verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him. Don't ever lose that word anymore. They walked away. They just walked away. Now then, if you're thinking that I'm making this up about them wanting food, look at verse 30 because they're going to give Jesus Christ a pop quiz. They asked the question, what can we do to do the works of God? And they said, show us a trick that we can believe. And then they give him a pop quiz, verse 30. So they said to him, do us a sign. All right? And then it gets explicit in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of the heavens. So what is it they're looking for? Do you understand that they are looking for the basic essentials for existence? Do you understand that? They're not looking, Lord, uh, what was that Janis Joplin song? Mercedes Benz, my friends all drive Porsches. That's not what they're looking for. They're saying, give me my basic sustenance. That's what they're asking for. They're not asking for, can I have my palace now? How about my kingdom? I have my kingdom. It's in there in Stephanie's office. It is. Go look. It's sitting right there on the floor. You can see it. A little castle. <laughs> Terry's kingdom. Everybody's going to They've lost the message completely now, and they're thinking, Terry's got a kingdom in the office. Small kingdom. Can you understand that? I want my basic sustenance. How many, uh, think about it, when you're looking for a job or when you're looking for maybe overtime to, to do something else and you ask Jesus to help you, you're, are you asking, you know, make me president of the United States. Now, nah, you don't make that much. Um, you know, make me, I don't know, an actor or, uh, or Bill Gates or something. That's not what they're asking. They're saying, I want my daily food. That's the quiz. Here's what Jesus says to them in light of that because it sets up what the reaction is. See, they had a question. I want to do the things of God. That's admirable. That is highly admirable. And he says, here's how you do the things of God. What? Believe in me. Wow, cool. Do a trick so we can. But do it in a way that's like Moses. Moses fed us in the wilderness. Here's what he says. I say to you, verse 32, it is not Moses who gave you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. See, we have this thing that a lot of times we like to shoot the messenger, even though the message is true. But if the messenger brings you a really cool thing, who gets the credit? The messenger. Right? Right? Who got the credit for the manna in the wilderness? Moses. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Moses didn't give that to you. 
For the bread of God, now grab this, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and what does what? Does life. Well, if you're standing there that day, you're going to sit there and say, well, that's what that manna thing was. It gave life. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. How much easier, Lord, is it us to serve you if you're just feeding us every day and we don't have to worry about, like, eating? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you, you've seen me, and yet... You do not believe. Can I stop right there? What did they ask Jesus to do? What did they ask Jesus? We want to be able to do the works of God. Correct? I want to be able to do things of God. Jesus said, piece of cake. Believe in me. Okay. Show us something to validate truly who you are. Feed us. We knew Moses was of God because Moses could actually feed us. So feed us. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Moses never fed you. My father fed you. They said, well, that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. You get the point. Feed us. If we have this to eat all the time, then I don't have to struggle about the day-to-day mundane stuff, you know, to try to exist. Okay, Jesus? And we can be out doing what? The things of God. See, Jesus, this isn't that complicated, Lord. Don't make it tough. Then he hits them with this. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never hunger. Thirst. You can't get a verse with more emphatics than any of Scripture than there right now. Will never hunger, will never thirst, period. Let me ask you guys a question. How are you doing? Do you have a life or do you have an existence? Are you doing the things of God? Or are you worried about the mundane things of day-to-day existence? Have you partaken of the bread or have you tasted the bread? I am the bread. He says, you know what? You have seen me and yet you do not believe. So Jesus, understanding what is getting ready to happen... It's the single most crushing thing that can happen to any individual. I don't care whether you're God incarnate or you're not. Okay? It is to be deserted. And when Jesus was deserted, his primary response is always the same same throughout the New Testament. He reserves himself and resorts back to God's absolute sovereignty. And that's what he says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, 
I will certainly not cast out. Okay? Look what he says. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that has he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, believes in him, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on that last day. There it is in a nutshell. That's the gospel. But let me explain something to you. He says, you must what? Believe to have this. All right? The common thinking is, is the same as going to be here today. But this is a bunch of, you know, you don't understand. I've got to get up and do eight to five Monday through Friday. I've got to have this and this bread and all this, you know. And I've got to drink and I've got to have that and that. And, of course, now we have to have health insurance. We've got to have dental insurance. We've got to have optical insurance. We've got to have car insurance. We've got to have, what I don't know what all that is, life insurance and all these other things. You've got to have those. And not only that, you've got to have tires on your car. You've got to have gasoline. You've got to have oil changes and all the rest of that. And, Jesus, can you give me that? Let me show you what their reaction was. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling. Verse 41, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And here is what was grumbling about. All right. What are they thinking about? The manna. The manna came. Where did it come? It came out of heaven. Just blowed right out of the sky. Stuck to everything. It's great. Okay. Were you there? No, I just, you know, it's been passed down. We don't even have video of it. Look what he says. They were saying, is this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come out out of heaven? Don't you find that amazing? And yet we're all guilty of it, every one of us in this room. We're guilty of that very thing. How many times have you gotten yourself into a trouble and God was faithful and brought you out of the trouble? And then you turn around and face the next day and you think, oh my, how am I going to do this? It's the same thing. Listen, will you grab this? You're at the end of the Galilean ministry. Death and disease has left the building. It isn't there anymore. He's overcome every aspect of existence. Natural, supernatural, the weather. He's overcome the weather. He's overcome every disease that exists, every demon that was brought before him, every question that has been posed to him. He has answered. He has answered with authority. And even the skies bow to his voice. And they're saying, ain't this Joseph's kid? How can he say he came out of heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. You got that? If you do not have a love for the Word of God, ask yourself why. Because he says, everyone who comes to me will be what? 
taught by the Father. Thessalonians says those who will perish in the end time following Antichrist, the reason they are not saved is because they did not have a love of the truth as to be saved. Acts chapter 13, he says he preached to the Jews and they wanted to contradict him. They wanted to argue with him. They wanted to debate with him. And he says, know this, men, by rejecting what you have heard, the word of God, you have said, you have judged yourself not worthy of eternal life. Those are three texts I just gave you that deal solely and wholly with the love of the written word, period. If I do not have a love of the written word, how can I say, I found the Lord and I feasted upon Him? Not that everyone, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes out of heaven so that the one who eat of it, the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that I came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give, I will give For the life of the world is my flesh. That's tough stuff. How's come I run into so many people who have bits and pieces of Christianity that are solid and yet they have gone and are doing their own thing their own way? And you know what? Some of you in this room today are doing it your own way. You have good theology. You've got solid principles, but you are allowing what you believe are the necessities, the needs that you believe are what you have to have in life. And those are the things that keep you from a love of the Word, a love of the Lord, and the love of the things of the Lord. Why? Jesus said, you can't come unless you eat of my flesh. Isn't that cannibalism? No wonder we can't find his body. Huh. But you see their reaction and you see his truth. He says, you ate of the manna, but what happened to those people? You eat of me, what happens? Okay, what happens if you taste of Christ? Come on, some of you went through Hebrews. What happens if you taste of Christ? If you taste of the things of God and you walk away, there no longer remains a way of salvation unto you. Did you get that? You eat of the things of Christ, you eat of Christ, or you taste of Christ. If you eat of Christ, you have eternal life. If you taste of Christ, you have put yourself in eternal damnation. There no longer, that's what it says. There is no way to be saved. How serious is that, brothers and sisters? Look at the reality, chapter, yeah, verse 52. The Jews began to argue with one another, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
No different than the rest of us. What are you getting at here, man? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Do we have to be so graphic? He, verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I will live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Okay, let me explain this all to you. And I have to do this very quickly. When John the Baptist seen Jesus Christ coming down for his baptism, what was his response to Jesus? He makes a profound statement that just echoed through Israel. Behold! The Lamb of God, who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. Yo, John, desert heat, that's a man, it ain't a lamb. Right? Let me take you back a few thousand years to the Passover. We all know about the Passover, don't we? Right? Take the sheep, cut its throat, take the blood up over the doorpost, angel of death passed by. And you, right, the next day, Pharaoh, get out of my house, right? Oh, take everything I own too, right? You missed something. You missed something huge. Where'd you get the lamb? That they cut his throat. They got it from their living quarters. It had just spent time living in their home. You know, cute little fuzzy lamb, not a sheep, lamb, cute little bugger, you know, sleeping with the kids, right? Oh, you got it. The kid, it hangs out with you in the home. He says, take it into your home, feed it, draw close to it, pull emotional ties to it, fall in love with it, and then kill it. And then eat it. I want you to cook it. And I want you to eat it. And if your family ain't big enough to eat it, go get somebody else and come over and eat your cute, fuzzy, adorable, loving little pet. That sounds cruel, doesn't it? Mean and nasty and horrible. Jesus is telling you and I this day, Fall in love, become emotionally attached, become immersed so much involved in me in such a way that when you think about me dying, it rips your heart out. And if you can't do that, you have no part of me. That's the gospels, brothers and sisters, and I am sorry. I am sorry it has to be that harsh, but we don't the depth of our sin. Because that's what it took. 
When I sit and I think about being a lower level galley slave, all I do is rejoice because I know the option. When I think about dying to self, no longer I who live, all the things that I would ever strive for are no longer of need. They are no longer a desire. Why? Because I've fallen in love with that cute little lamb of God. And I want to stay immersed with that Lamb of God. I want to embrace that Lamb of God. I want to be every breath on that Lamb of God. I want every thought of that Lamb of God. I want everything I do to be that Lamb of God. And Jesus Christ is saying, unless you immerse yourself in me, in all of me, unless you eat of my flesh, unless you drink of my blood, and you understand that is what keeps the angel of death from taking you, you have no part of me. When you partake of the Lord's table, understand, you are falling in love. You're making a public confession that this man means more to me than my children, than my wife, than my soul. It means more than my job. It means more than my education. More what the things that I can do. It means more than the Broncos. And he means so much to me that I will sacrifice it all should He want it. That's the Lord's table, brothers and sisters. And the reality is the same thing. As I preach this today, it's the same thing that happens to the Jews at the time of this. The reality. The bread which came down from heaven is not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. You will only live forever. And if you do not, you will only die forever. I have people who believe that salvation is easy. You just say the sinner prayer. When they have an altar call, you know, go up. Was you crying when he asked you? Then you got to be saved. No, you're not. He says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you are not. Let me tell you something. Salvation is the single hardest thing you will ever do in your existence. Please understand, but it's by faith through grace. Yes! But let me tell you something. You're involved in it. And you can't come say, well, it's faith by grace, and I'll read this Bible when I feel like it, and I'll hang out with long-winded preachers, and life be good. That ain't it. You have become one with the God of glory. And guess what? You're not seen. Sorry. You are nothing but a vessel. Let's go on. I want to show you this. Because I need you to see this. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And I can look at the expression on some of your faces and thinking, God, Terry, I thought we was going to have a good one today. We are having a good one today. Who can listen to this? And Jesus, conscious of what his disciples grumbled at, said this. 
Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I love that. I love that. What are you going to do? If eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood is going to cause you a hard time, yo, dude, when you see me going up to the heavens, up to God, that's really going to bother you. <laughs> I mean, you know, if this is causing you to stumble, I mean, you know, when you see me ascending, stand back. That's what he says. Why? He knows he's going to ascend. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and our life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who would, <clears throat> who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. He draws back to the sovereignty of God in verse 65. For this reason I say to you that no man comes to me unless it is granted him from the Father. Now let me, I'm going to just quickly give you some stuff to think about. It is common practice of, a, of mankind to fall away from God. Now please what, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying for lost people. I'm talking about people to come up, inspect it, look at it, get enamored with it, and then walk away. Okay? <clears throat> Moses went up on the Mount Sinai to get the law. God sent him back down. Why? I mean, they'd just gone through the plagues of Egypt. They'd just crossed the Red Sea. They had the whirlwind and the fire and all that other weird stuff was going on. And when he went up there to get the tablets, what happened? Go back down to those people. They have forsaken me and built a calf. And the whole Old Testament is God blesses. They bow broken and help and thank you and all the rest of it. And they do what? Judges sums it up. Every man's doing what is right in his own mind, heart. Mind and heart. Right? Absolutely. The Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says this. He's writing his very last letter. He's preparing to die. In chapter 1, he's writing Timothy, and he concludes that, please, if you can come quickly, bring me a cloak. I'm freezing my keister off. That's paraphrased. He's in the Mamertine prison preparing to be beheaded. And in, in, in his court, he says this. No, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says this. All who are in Asia have turned away from me. You got that? All of the churches that were in Asia have turned away from the Apostle Paul. Chapter 3 of that text, he says, At my trial, no one stood to defend me. Jesus just has a large multitude in verse 66 withdrew, not walking with him anymore. Paul speaks of Demas who has gone the way of the world and has forsaken me.
If you have never been forsaken, if you have never had somebody walk away from you, desert you, then you do not know this pain. I know this pain. John puts it this way in 1 John. They claim to be with us, but they went out from us and therefore prove they are not with us. Please understand this isn't new. Why? This is a difficult saying. Salvation is not, you know, hey, say a prayer. Jesus is good. No. If, you know, as we said, do you have a good contemporary worship service? Where does it say that? Jesus says, if you do not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you ain't of me. But let me show you a promise and we'll conclude it with this. So Jesus said to the twelve, can you figure the heartache of this? He's asked them. He just told them, you know what? I am the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God at Passover, what did you do with that lamb? You ate it. After you got very much attached to the little bugger. You had killed it and you ate it. And not only that, Dad spread its blood over the door. And he says, I'm the Lamb of God. I need you to do this. You can't take part of me. It's like this. It's like the church. People say, well, how can you love the church more than Christ? I, I can't separate the church from Christ. I, I, how do we do that? It says, do not forsake the assembly together, which is having a many, but join together so you can what? Stimulate one another's love and good deeds. We do it by telephones and emails now. And I don't, I don't get stimulated by email. Well, every once in a while I do. But it's a wrong stimulation. Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, he just had this massive group, withdrew and walked with him no more. This is a group that's been following him around all of Galilee. This is a group who's heard his teaching. This is a group who's seen the miracles. This is a group who have stood in awe of this man. And they've walked away. And he turns to his disciples. You do not want to go away also, do you? The Lord of glory looking at 12 knuckleheads and says, you going to leave me too? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answers this, did I myself not choose you? One of the greatest things about this is, is that when you fall in love and you understand that you can eat this and you can drink of this and it could be one with him, is that you had absolutely nothing to do with it. <laughs> he chose you and you are so sealed up tight. Who can separate you from the love of God? I, that's amazing to me. Who's going to get up? I think I'm going to get up and eat me some Jesus flesh today. No, you ain't. You're going to bow and say, Thus saith the Lord, here I am, send me. Why? I couldn't have thought this up, Lord. And the Lord says, Yeah, I know. We're going to take to the Lord's table. Please understand that you are publicly proclaiming before all that he who sees everything, that you and him are one. Understand this, in the church in the Corinth, some were playing such a game that they were falling ill and some were dying. 
because they looked at the Lord's table as a sacrament. You now know it's not a sacrament. And if you do not know the Lord, if you have not made a profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord of every aspect of your life, that He will take my life and let it be. Every moment, every day, be flowing, ceasing praises from me, then don't take it. It isn't something to be afraid of or ashamed of, but it is something that you need to understand that Jesus Christ gave to us as a picture of what he did on Calvary. And it should not be entered into lightly. Let's pray. Father, I give you the praise for your word. Father, in this massive passage, Lord, there was so much here that I'm overwhelmed. And Lord, I pray that what was given is what you wanted. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, I thank you for the bread and the cup. Father, I thank you for the flesh of my Lord and my Savior that died for me. And Father, in my heart, make it something that all I can do is feast on the person of Christ. That the whole... I am completely consumed in you and your ways. Father, may the harvest be plentiful. And may you send many labors that we may reap your bounty. In Christ's name, amen.